Broadcasting from the city centre. Cambridge 105 Radio. Radio, 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 radio. Oh, there's a bit of an echo on that, isn't there? Good afternoon. Uh, or if you're listening to some catch-up, hello, because I don't know what time you're listening to us. Uh, welcome to the Cambridge Film Show, the show that shoots for the moon and will sing the praises of any film that deserves it, even sing if we have to. Today we'll be examining the credibility of Halle Berry and Patrick Wilson saving the world in Moonfall, We'll be getting in line with Parallel Mothers, watching Jackass Forever through our fingers and admiring the latest in Japanese animation with Belle. Plus a roundup of what else you can see in cinemas and at home this week. Uh, to help me pick through all of that in the studio today are uh, Vicky Eyre. Hello. And Henry Jordan. Hello. Right, let's get started though with a rather grandly titled sequel. Hi. Hi, Julie. Jim. Sorry about your loss. Thank you. This is going to be the most important thing you do at film school, your graduation film. It's about a relationship that hopefully many people can relate to. Presumably there's a film next, but... No, a whole team of students. And no-one's giving you direction? No. Sounds fairly typical for an art school. OK, let's hold it there. Cut! Right, what were your thoughts? It excites me. It's like me. Don't say something that you could say after watching anything. It's great. It excites me. Say something specific. Honestly. The Souvenir Part 2 is the follow-up to Joanna Hogg's 2019 film, The Souvenir, rather unsurprisingly. Uh, it sees the return of Julie, uh, played by Honor Swinton Byrne, who's working through her film school projects and has now decided to make a film of the trauma caused to her in the original Souvenir Part 1. Uh, we also see Tilda Swinton, her real-life mother, back as Rosalind, her mother, in the film, and Richard Iwadi, delightfully uh, returning to cause more chaos in the background as well. So, Vicky, first of all, uh, did this excite you? Um, I should mention that I have only seen this film and I'm going to take that this is a, a standalone for me. Um, did this excite me? Uh, it did in ways once I fully got into it, but I feel like having not seen the first one, there's lots of clues that I did miss out on that probably would have made me more... <clears throat> entranced to watch the rest of it and to pick up on little hints that other people in the audience were clearly like really excited about to witness but um, unfortunately I think this maybe fell short for me just because I found the main character a little bit unappealing and the 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 relationship that was she was talking about I was unfamiliar with and just in general I found her just lacked the the presence I needed to be really enthralled. But in saying that, the side characters really entertained me and kept me in just... Tilda Swinton is always absolutely, like, astound... Like, the relationship with the parents in this is something that I really stayed for. And I think, um, yeah, all the little pop-ups and shout-out to Richard Iowardi for being incredible for his maybe three minutes total of screen time. So um, did it excite me? Maybe not. But was, did I enjoy it? It's so-and-so. <laughs> and so, Henry, you have actually seen the first one uh, coming to this. Uh, did you then feel that actually we even needed uh, a sequel, having seen the first film? Because that wasn't called The Souvenir Part 1. This uh, you know, has this rather grand Part 2 title, a la The Godfather. Uh, but did, did you feel, having watched the first one, that, that there was a, a reasonable excuse for a follow-up? Well, after watching the first one, I did think this, is, this feels like a full story to me. But then when news came out that Joanna Hogg was working on a second one, I thought, yeah, after this, I'll happily happily see where this goes and then having seen the second one i've now seen both of them twice 
I can't imagine doing this story without the second part. To me, it is completely essential. That's why it's part two, not the souvenir two. They are one and the same. This is one whole project of the souvenir. You need to have this one to bounce off of the first one. There are kind of conversations and themes that are in the background of the first one that return to the that come to the foreground in this one and then become much fuller, much better realised. I saw the first one recently when it was back in cinemas with a friend who hadn't seen it before, and I was talking about them with it and about the themes and the kind of feelings I'd gotten from it with the knowledge of the second one already, and she completely didn't get it. And I think that is what the second one does. It kind of draws out everything that was already there but simmering in the first one and really just allows it to come to boil. So I think there is then a risk here because I spoke to a friend who works in distribution uh, when I saw this at the London Film Festival. We were chatting away in the queue. And I think she felt it was going to be a very hard film to sell because, as you say, there's so much that picks up from the first film, but if people haven't seen the first film, are they going to have Vicky's experience and maybe not quite feeling they've taken it as much uh, as they should have done? Uh, you know, it, would you, having seen both, be recommending people absolutely should watch the first one before going to see this? I would say, if you can, definitely try and watch the first one first. It's currently available on iPlayer, so it's very easy to get hold of. And I think, if you can, it's definitely going to improve the experience. Um, it will work without the first one, because there is enough in there to clue you into the events of the first one. But there are images and moments and lines of dialogue that are kind of plucked almost at random from the first one. And when you feel them again in the second one, they come back and have a completely different emotional resonance. Vicky, uh, if I come back to you, uh, you've already mentioned the, uh, the slightly blank canvas, shall we say, uh, politely, of the of the central character. Um, you, know, you are both significantly younger than me. I suspect your ages put together are probably not going to get anywhere near close to mine. Uh, but this coming of age story, and particularly this development, you know, feels uh, almost verging on a trope lately in in cinema. Um, did you did you feel any empathy with with any aspects of this of her story that she was going through? I think uh, I think what I need to say is that. I definitely felt a lot of the themes very personally in this film and because I hadn't seen the first one I probably missed out on the likability I would have related to her if I had done but it was more like I was getting a personal experience from the film. Um, this is a very compared to a lot of American coming of age films this is done very delicately and I think in that way it can be like really hard to watch on screen and, and because you'd make it more personal towards yourself. It's very understated in the way that they do it. And like I mentioned, the relationship with the parents, the small the small things like uh, her mom being so concerned. And the most shocking part of the film was when is the scene where she drops her mother's made sugar pot that she'd spent ages crafting in these these classes. And for that, for such a simple thing to like be so heartfelt, and I had an audible gasp in my screening from it, it, it shows that the kind of... The relate, like how it can how personal it actually is to the people watching it and just she has done that remarkably well and I think that's the best thing about this film is that it is it's very true to the coming of age and if anyone had had the, like the relationship shown in the first film and talked about in the second it can be quite a unnerving but very like re releasing experience I would say. 
Uh, one thing I'm keen to get both of your thoughts on, I'll start with you first, mm. Vicky, as well, is that uh, this is, of course, a semi-autobiographical from Joanna mm. Hogg, one of many such films in cinemas at the moment. Also, we, I think we previously talked about Kenneth Branagh's Belfast, talking about a much earlier period in his life. Uh, but actually, because of that, it is getting into a lot of the, the detail and the, the personal development uh, that Julie has to go through as she's trying to make her film. Mm. And we see a lot of the inner workings and processes of somebody putting together a student film. Uh, d- did that really, do you feel, give you a genuine feel for, for what it's like to be a filmmaker? Did it ever sort of make you think that actually, yeah, having seen that, I'd love to do that or I'd absolutely run a mile from it? Having been to art school and having to collaborate on a few projects while also going through maybe a similar situation, I can completely see the chaos on screen, but it did make me miss it. The only part I couldn't relate to, which is, a, I think, a known theme throughout this uh, duo films, is the uh, the wealth factor. Um, I think a lot of people watching this... Um, to explain is that she doesn't she doesn't get the funding for her film to be made and uh, by her school and so instead she goes to her parents and they you know her mother gives her the like the the money and I just don't think that's a relatable thing but could be for others but to like I miss the chaos that I saw I um I would want to be maybe in that environment again it's very like I said it's very it's an understated film for the coming of age but they get the relatability so correct and that art school scene where everyone's fighting and she's just sat there very calmly taking in all the criticism but not knowing when to pipe in i i definitely um yeah i understood all of that uh, henry did this give you a desire to uh, to go and immediately register for film school <laughs> um no not really i think it's very much i you know i can see it and understand the appeal but i i did think i couldn't be that person there sitting on that bus as everyone tells me that i'm not prepared enough and i need a shot list and i don't know what i'm doing with the actors but i think that's the kind of the power of the film is that it is very capable of bringing me into this world that i haven't experienced and going this does feel like what it would actually feel like um and i think i like that vicky's brought up this scene because We've been talking about Julian relatability, but I think actually one of the things Hogg does really cleverly is that despite our closeness to Julie, she never lets her off the hook. There are these kind of criticisms. There are characters who who call her out almost on this wealth she has or, or talking about the relationship and saying, no, I don't understand. Why would you do this? And I like that despite this closeness we have, Hogg is always saying, you know, I understand that this is my perspective. This is my my past, my memories, but it's not unimpeachable we can pick it apart and we can say why we we mentioned there the fact that there is maybe this slight distancing from being able to relate to it because it's a cast of wealthy characters and we've had the BAFTA nominations released this week and Souvenir Part 2 has not picked up a single nomination it barely got shortlist of any of the awards yet it is about as British a film as you could possibly think and it's also a film which is in love with the, the history of British film as well you know it, it knows its own place it knows its own context in British film and celebrates the styles of so many other filmmakers as well. Uh, can we speculate on why we think it... Is it that reason simply that we think it's not been recognised or did enough people just not watch the first one? Any any thoughts on why this has just not got the recognition? Um, I feel like there hasn't been a lot of... There hasn't been the known hype along the second one and obviously when the first one came out it garnered all these great reviews and yet a lot of people I've talked to have still not seen it and I don't know why that is but maybe... Maybe it is the way that the marketing's done. It's just not as enticing as maybe 
we we were talking about House of Gucci getting a nomination for like best film, and is that correct? Yeah, and that is maybe not the most British film you can think of. Um, so I'm I'm quite shocked, but I I'd want this to replace it. But at the same time, maybe it just doesn't have the audience enticement that something like Lady Gaga has. Yeah, and uh, yeah, there are five films up for best film and ten for best British film, and within those ten best British films are remarkably House of Gucci uh, as well as No Time to Die and uh, w- one of my least favourite films of the London Film Festival Last Night in Soho uh, which I would recommend anyone not to watch uh, if you're listening love Edgar Wright love all of his other films but that one didn't do it for me this of course is the joy of award season though that uh, there'll be films that we love films that we hate uh, I mean I, let's digress very slightly onto that because the, the five films that have been nominated this year for best film uh, are at the BAFTAs Uh, We have Belfast, we have Licorice Pizza, uh, we have uh, The Power of the Dog, Dune, and Don't Look Up. Do we feel those are are representative of the five best films we've seen in the past year? I can honestly say it's one of the worst lineups I've ever witnessed. (laughs) Apart from um, Licorice Pizza, because I was a personal big fan of the film, I'm just quite... I'm I'm stunned. (laughs) I'm just simply stunned. I, I have to agree. I you know there are films on that list I enjoy. I'm a big fan of June and Licorice Pizza, mm. but I find Don't Look Up and Belfast very puzzling. <laughs> I know Belfast has a lot of adoration, but I am not among its fans, and I haven't seen The Power of the Dog, so I can't speak on that. But I think it is a very confused award season that is kind of struggling to find its feet, and this is a good symptom of that. Yeah, I, I would say that of those five, The Power of the Dog is my favourite. That's currently available to watch on Netflix. Uh, well worth seeing. Great performances from Benedict Cumberbatch. And Kirsten Dunst, among others. Uh, Cody Smith-McPhee, of course, also weirdly nominated for the Best Rising uh, for the Rising Star Award, uh, despite having been in films for well over ten years. Uh, you know, awards. Uh, who'd who'd vote for them? Who'd have them? I don't know. Uh, but let, that's our little digression done. I should tell you, uh, of course, as we've been talking about the souvenir part two, uh, it is rated fifteen and it is currently showing at the Arts Picture House. And as Henry mentioned, if you'd like to go and watch the original first, you can see it on the iPlayer. Uh, you are listening to the Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio across the city and South Cambridgeshire. Uh, Vicky Eyre and Henry Jordan are with me this morning, uh, picking through all the week's best new releases uh, and some of the uh, not best new releases as well. Uh, and we've still got to come chat about Moonfall, Jackass Forever, Bell and a roundup of what else is showing. But now, let us turn our attention to a film which I don't sadly have a trailer for because it is in Spanish. Uh, it is Parallel Mothers. Uh, we've been having a little bit of a chat off air uh, and I think maybe this again shows the difficulty of people trying to market uh, foreign language cinema that we had three different pronunciations of Pedro Almodovar. Uh, I'm not necessarily going to put either of you on the spot of the minute because we'll see if you mentioned it in, in conversation to see what we come up with. And I'm not sure that Googling has convinced me uh, other search engines are available. Uh, not sure that Googling has convinced me which is the correct pronunciation. So I'm going to stick my ground and say Pedro Almodovar. It is his latest film and his seventh collaboration with Penelope Cruz. Uh, clearly a very effective working partnership behind the scenes. In this particular film, we see the relationship between Penelope Cruz's character. Uh, she plays... Uh, and I'm scrolling down the list to try and remind myself. Uh, oh, they're not even in order, are they? Uh, that's the joys of live radio, ladies and gentlemen. Um, what was what was what was Penelope Cruz's character called? I saw this film like three days ago. This is ridiculous. Well, while while I ask you two a question, I'm going to actually try and get a proper cast list, and we'll come back to this. Uh, and she then was we called Janice. She was called Janice. That's what she was called. Uh, yeah. Thank you, uh, the Internet Movie Database, for letting me down on this particular occasion. Uh, she was called Janice, and uh, she has a baby later in life. 
uh, uh, through a partner who she's got a relationship with because he is involved in helping her try to exhume a grave from the Spanish Civil War that's an unmarked grave, uh, but he wants nothing to do with the baby when it arrives, so she instead forms a bond with another mother she meets on the maternity ward. Uh, twists ensue. Uh, so, first of all, regardless of the pronunciation, uh, Henry, uh, are you a fan of uh, Almodovar? Um, I'll be honest, when I first kind of encountered him at university, I was really not a fan, which is, you know, a very controversial uh, take. We, I watched Volver and really didn't didn't get into it. I, I thought, well, this is just not the filmmaker for me. But then, as I kind of continued my degree, I discovered more and more of his films, and I now find myself, you know, a couple of years later, actually being quite a big fan of his. Um, I saw Pain and Glory and thought, wow, yeah, this is a kind of a filmmaker who is still at the very top of his game, and I thought I'm ready and willing for whatever it is he has next. And what he has next is, I think, what can fairly be described as yet another classic Almodovar film. He is just this master of real, real high-pitched melodrama. He Nothing feels too outlandish, but he, he takes everything to a kind of logical extreme. The visuals are a great example of this, the way that everything is is slightly too red or slightly too green, the way it all pops off the screen. Um, and the plot as well, it's very melodramatic to the extent that I'd worked out a lot of the the kind of plot twists and revelations along the way, but I think its melodramatic nature really helps and plays into this. And the fact that I knew where it was going and it felt so over the top was always fine. That's part of the film and I was really happy to go along with it, even as I knew where we were heading. Uh, Vicky, uh, this is actually uh, maybe an example of a success story in terms of cinema, because it's actually number six in, our, in the UK's box office top ten chart at the moment. So clearly this has connected with audiences, and it is showing at two of our local cinemas, which is maybe a little unexpected for a, a foreign language film. But again, it's dealing with some quite heavy themes, potentially. You know, there's uh, both of the difficult um, uh, maternity experiences we go through, there's the Spanish Civil War encroaching as well. Um, this had the risk of being quite a heavy film. Did it feel heavy to you? Um, so, in saying that, the we- like, if we're talking about Al- Almodovar, um, he always starts Penelope Cruz because I feel like he has things and topics he wants to say and she is the distraction or maybe the light-hearted character or actress that we need to fully engage but also take on board and I could not take my eyes off her throughout this entire film. She is absolutely sewn on screen and I think that comes with the relationship that they have as like a muse and director. But in saying that, yes, there were very quick, serious topic changes. Um, he... In, like he engages with this by making it quite like Spanish telenovela like more than I've ever seen him do before and this is like a new take I've seen from him but it very much she lightens the load of what we catch on screen and these things are happening but they don't feel as serious because she's there to like li- like lighten it a little bit um, whereas her counterpart Melina Smith she's there to like bring back the realization of what is quite happening on screen she's like what are you doing uh this is quite a serious thing and you are seeing it through penelope cruz's eyes and you don't realize quite what is happening and melina smith as a counterpart definitely brings you grounds you a little bit which i enjoyed to watch on screen it was a very good partnership uh, does this film feel genuine? We, we talked about the, the some of the characters in the souvenir part two. Uh, you know, I, I can't say I have particular uh, ability to, to speak to the truth of what it's like to go through uh, maternity, but did this feel uh, genuine, Henry, in, in the character experiences and, and particularly some of the reactions to some of the plot twists and turns that we see? I think 
I think it doesn't quite feel genuine. However, I don't think that's a criticism of the film. I think, as I've been saying, there is a, an artificiality to the film, but it's a glorious artificiality. This is a kind of a slightly candy-coloured take on our own world. Not entirely divorced, but it's it's a kind of heightened version of our own. And I think that helps kind of sweeten the pill of when, of when yeah, the Spanish Civil War stuff starts to come in. Um, and I think... The surprising thing for me is that as much as there is that that artificiality and that heightened nature to the world, when the emotional beats came, I was still completely invested. When that ending comes, I was still quite blown away. And I don't quite know how he's done it. He's created this world that we are very specifically detached from, and yet I remain completely attached to it. I, one of the things that I was slightly curious about is the the pacing of the film in certain senses because actually uh, the core plot really is focusing on the stories of the two mothers and, and indeed one of those mothers' mothers as well coming into the, 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 the plot as well. But then actually the focus really does become the, the Spanish Civil War plot towards the end of the film. Uh, does Almodovar get away with that? Um, he does indeed because uh, he brings the topic of the main theme back around. So... And to maybe spoil this a little bit, it's about obviously two two mothers having two children and there's a certain plot twist which leads to only one child and he brings the main thing back to the environment that we, we witnessed the Spanish Civil War um, extraction of the graves and it is really heartfelt but it brings the, you know, it brings the family topic back around and because we're still engaged with that, um, he does get away with it because you, you see the full picture, which is what he wanted to see and I mean, in Moldovar fashion as well, he he always builds these immersive sceneries and sets. And because you're so captivated by what you're looking at um, with his colour schemes or his locations or his house interiors, you're like, you, you feel that it's OK because he builds this environment that it's OK for you to watch it in. Uh, I think finally on this one, Henry, if you are not already an Almodovar fan, uh, will this convince you? And might it then convince you to go out and start watching some of his other films? I think, well, I think perhaps if you're very specifically not a fan, if you do not like his work, then this would not convince you otherwise. It's very much more Almodovar. However, I think if this is your first, it would be a good introduction because it is more Almodovar. It's, it's his style, it's his, his emotional beats and tones. I think if, if you haven't seen one of his films before, this is a really good one to check out because it's going to kind of draw you into some of his main interests and... And the way that he can use Penelope Cruz, who, if you've never seen her in a Spanish-language film before, is so much better than in any film when she speaks English. She just takes it to another level in all of his films, I think. Um, so this would, yeah, be one to check out. And uh, she's certainly taken it to another level here. I think uh, he has as well. I think we're all big fans here. Uh, and if you'd like to go and see what all the fuss is about, Parallel Mothers is showing at the Arts Picture House and at the Light, and it is rated 15. Uh, this is the Cambridge Film Show. Still plenty to come on the show. But now it's time to take a look rather bravely, at what I think could be described as one of the most ridiculous films of the year. If you're watching this, can you know by now a huge problem is heading our way. An emergency meeting is being called at our usual place immediately. Free bagels. I've made a shocking discovery. I need you to get me in touch with NASA immediately. Well, NASA and I aren't really on speaking terms these days. Well, that'll change. When you tell them that the moon is out of orbit. There's no need to panic. Not crazy! Why are they lying about all this? It's too late to stop. 
You knew all this was happening before NASA. You're the unidentified source? Oh, yes. We're dealing with an intelligent entity. We're planning a mission to attack this thing. I'm asking you for your help. Say yes, Brian. Yeah, go on, say yes, Brian. Uh, Moonfall is the latest from director Roland Emmerich, who was involved in Course of Independence Day, along with Dean Devlin, and then brought us The Day After Tomorrow and 2012, amongst his other greatest hits. This time, Halle Berry is a high-up person at NASA who ends up holding the keys to the establishment and trying to work her way through an international global crisis. Uh, Meanwhile, she has uh, disavowed astronaut Patrick Wilson as her only possible help, and conspiracy theorist John Bradley uh, throwing himself into the mix. Uh, the, the word intelligence there was mentioned, uh, Henry. Uh, do you believe there's any real intelligence on the show from the filmmakers here without uh, without slandering anyone involved? Um, no, no. <laughs> to be quite quite simple, I don't. Um, there's the, the thing about the premise of this film is that it sounds like a joke, which is interesting because it kind of is. There's a 90s sketch show called Mr. Show with um, Bob Odenkirk and David Cross. And there's a a sketch on it in which America decides to blow up the moon, which features the quote, America can, should, must and will blow up the moon. And that is kind of the plot of Moonfall in a nutshell there. It is impressively stupid. And I think part of me wonders how much of that is a deliberate move to kind of move away from some, you know, over-intellectualising of cinema and the other part of me thinks that they just went, what if we blew up the moon? I mean, yeah, it's an interesting question. Let's let's make no bones about it. I am old enough, uh, we've talked about my age already in the show, let's get back to it again, uh, to, to remember, uh, you know, well into my 20s, seeing Independence Day in the cinemas. And I went three times, because I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I'm not ashamed to admit it. Uh, and I think I enjoyed it so much because it perfects that real uh, lightness of tone. You know, it does these big global events, but actually the likes of Will Smith come in and they really actually find the right tone to make it work. Yeah, I know some people who were disappointed by that film because the first act does all feel quite serious and then it all goes a bit silly. Does this ever really get the tone right and does anyone involved in the cast ever get the tone right? Um, no, it's kind of... There's this balance of is it, is it an action film? Is it a, is it a comedy? Is it a thriller? There, are, there gets to a point in the film where... And this is this is no spoiler because it's the same in many disaster movies. We are split between our main crew doing their valiant mission to try and save the world, and then some people on Earth just doing their thing. And I think jumping between there, there are these wild, wildly different tones for them. Where the the grand mission is this really deep and heavy sci-fi stuff, and then the other the the scenes down on Earth are more like scenes from a video game. They feel like. Uh, scenes from Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask in which there is this giant moon looming over the earth and it's difficult to know whether to to laugh or cry. I mean, there's a point when you get dialogue like uh, the moon has entered the stratosphere. Now, I'm no scientist, but I'm kind of feeling that we would all be rather doomed at that point if that was happening and yet the film just seems to treat it as another you know, a minor inconvenience for the film. Um, it, what it also seems to do is to try and have action sequences where it doesn't really care about explaining why things are going on that are going on. Um, is it all just a bit lazy? <laughs> I don't know if I'd say lazy. I think they put a lot of effort into whatever this is. I think it's to the, I actually think it's to the great credit of the film that they don't really seem to care about the 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 logics or the physics of it because when these kind of action films are at their best. That is what they're divorced from. The the best 
turn your brain off action movies. Don't worry about physics and well, what actually would happen if the moon entered the stratosphere. They are able to deliver such top-tier action and spectacle that you go along with it. I think the problem with Moonfall is that it isn't quite top-tier action and spectacle. If the action was good enough, you'd be able to go along with the fact that this film is really, really stupid. But I was never quite able to get to that level of detachment. Yeah, I, I, I think for me, uh, there's probably one person who comes out of this with some vague credit, apart from Halle Berry, who has the fantastic line, uh, how many Brian's do you think are on the moon? Uh, which, I, for me, that was one brief moment when the tone did actually kind of work. But uh, John Bradley, uh, being a big Game of Thrones fan, people know him as Samuel Tarly from Game of Thrones, uh, and he has to do a lot of the comedic heavy lifting here. Um, for me, he was about the only redeeming feature here. Did, uh, did he add any value for you, or did he, he also not quite manage it? Oh, no, I, f- I feel the opposite way. I thought his, his sections were were quite uncomfortable. I think it was clear that he is, you know, this character is in here to be the comic relief character, and I felt that none of his jokes really landed. It was a very one-note, he's a crazy conspiracy theorist character whose conspiracy theories may actually have some weight to them. Um, I actually thought Patrick Wilson was really good in this. I I find him a very charismatic actor, and I was very happy to just watch him wandering around looking stern as he went from no one believes me that I didn't, you know, let my friend die in space to I'm going to save the world and there's nothing you can do about it. He somehow pulled that transition off for me. Well, I think that's probably uh, given uh, Moonfall more airtime than it deserves. Uh, If you would like to go and see a film in which a uh, space shuttle tries to take off underwater, uh, then then good luck, frankly. Uh, it's showing all three Cambridge cinemas, and it is rated 12A. Uh, this is the Cambridge Film Show. Do stay with us, because we're going to round up some of the other delights you can see at the moment in cinemas and at home, and also digest Jackass Forever and Bell in more detail. Cambridge 105 Radio. Saturday night on Cambridge 105 Radio is all about the soul. Hi, this is Jamie Stocker. Join me here on Cambridge 105 Radio playing two hours of classic, rare and new funk and soul regular features and playing the very best in new music across the funk and soul genres. The Funk and Soul Show with Jamie Stocker tonight at 8, right after Chris Brown on Cambridge 105 Radio. Just your average night. Fraser's upstairs gaming online with his mates. Sophie's streaming her favourite tunes in her bedroom. Mum's downloading the latest drama box set. And Dad's liking kitten videos on his phone. But this isn't your average night. Thanks to City Fibre's full fibre network, everyone's gaming, streaming and scrolling at breakneck speed. Join Cambridge's gigabit revolution today. Head to cityfibre.com slash Cambridge 105. CKLG Accountants are a friendly team of accountants and tax advisors with big firm expertise. I'm Lawrence, Director of CKLG, responsible for business services. We understand that running a successful business brings many challenges. Our experienced business services team provide a bespoke service and offer professional advice at every stage of your business journey, allowing you the freedom to focus more on what you do best. To find out more, call us on Cambridge 810100 to arrange an initial chat with one of our specialists or visit our website cklg.co.uk cklg accountants your partner in business your partner in life cambridge 105 radio 
You are listening to the Cambridge Film Show here on Cambridge 105 Radio across the city and South Cambridgeshire. Uh, I am Mark Walsh, uh, still just about remembering my own name after I changed it last year, and uh, still with me are uh, Vicky Eyre and Henry Jordan, helping me pick through the week's releases. Uh, if you miss the start of the show, don't forget that uh, we do have a repeat uh, and also a podcast of the show every time it's on air, uh, so uh, you can always catch us uh, if you're not around with us for our original airings. Uh, so far this week, if you'd like to go back and catch it, uh, if you missed it, uh, first time round we've talked uh, about how much we loved The Souvenir Part 2 and Parallel Mothers and how much we didn't love Moonfall but there's a whole host of other films currently showing in cinema so let's just spend a few minutes picking through some of those as well um now, my job as host is to try and uh, make sure that we've got a, a good schedule of films for the show. I couldn't quite twist the arms of either of this week's reviewers to go and watch Sing 2. Uh, and I have to say, I don't blame them for that, because having seen the original, I wouldn't describe myself as a fan by any stretch. Uh, but I will say, if you've got young children and you're looking for something to do in half-term, which is, I think, just over a week away for uh, the schools around Cambridgeshire, and you've already seen Encanto 47 times, because that's what I would have done, I've still got the soundtrack on a loop in the car, um, then it is actually better than the first one. I was I was uh, pleasantly surprised. Uh, I actually did laugh at some of the jokes. It did feel like it had more of a plot. Um, And actually, Bono, uh, although he's clearly just turned up to earn the paycheck, is actually still reasonably uh, bearable or lionable, because I think he's playing a lion. Um, Yeah, so the anthropomorphised, I regret trying to say that now, animals uh, in the film get to sing lots of jukebox songs uh, and generally have lots of fun. Uh, so, I, I, as I would say, uh, I don't think I will ever persuade uh, uh, Vicky or Henry to go and see Sing 2, but if you're listening and have uh, children who are looking for something to do uh, either this weekend or as we head into half-term, and you, particularly if you enjoyed the original, then I would strongly recommend it. Uh, if you're looking for something a little more grown-up, then the new Asgar Hardy film, A Hero, is also showing on Amazon Prime. Uh, now, my two reviewers haven't seen this, but they have uh, their own different perspectives on uh, Iranian cinema and how much they've seen. Uh, so, uh, Henry, I'll come to you, because you've not seen any uh, Asghar Fahadi films previously, but you have seen some Iranian cinema. Um, so what would really tempt you into trying maybe a new Iranian film or a new, a new genre or a new part of world cinema that you've not experienced before? Um, I'll be honest, I've only really heard good stuff about Asghar Fahadi. It's, it's not really a case of, of not being interested and more just uh, having not gotten around to it yet i think he's a filmmaker who i think perhaps what has put me off before is just that he always deals in very very serious and intense subjects and i think that can be certainly for me a bit off-putting if you know i know i can go to you know other international films and get slightly less full-on experiences but i think i know that from what i've 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 heard i'm going to be only getting you know really really high quality and and well-realised um, films that have just got like fantastic writing and just top-tier performances from him. Uh, and Vicky, uh, what, what, when you look down the, the week's listings, what makes a film stand out for you in particular? Uh, and what might grab you into to something that maybe you, a genre film that you'd not explored before? Um, like Henry mentioned, it's always good to go off a director's reputation, um, especially if your friend's like, oh, you haven't seen anything by this director, and it makes you obviously want to watch it so you can talk about it with them later on. But um, I think the in general it's more just the the subject matter how how it looks in the trailers and things like that and taking like Fahadi as an example it is a more serious topic but um going back to his earlier work his last work was everybody knows which also stars penelope cruz shining with javier bardem in uh, in the town of buenos aires and so it is an by an iranian filmmaker but in in Spain and that was a very good introduction to him and in general I uh, I took away his kind of direction and I would obviously I'd love to see this film 
now it is on demand and uh, I think that like seeing trailers and knowing introductions and having good actors and actresses is always a great thing to want you to introduce people to their work. Uh, well, I'll now try and do my job of pitching a hero to the two of you to see if I can persuade you to, to watch it. That I think it's uh, a film that's quite similar to some of his previous films. The Separation is probably his most famous film, which did very well on the awards season when it came out, uh, I think about ten years ago now. It's, uh, it's uh, quite a while ago. Uh, and this one involves a, a, a case of some found money, uh, some honesty about whether or not it's been given back, and all of a sudden there's lots of plot twists and turns. And I do think that when Fagardi's making Fahadi, sorry, is making uh, films at his best, that they almost come off like mini thrillers. They're almost Hitchcockian in the the tension that he can actually build. And I would say this isn't quite as good as a separation, but uh, you know it is still a very good example of his work. Uh, so I'm getting lots of lots of nods, and yeah, I might give that a go. Uh, if you feel similar or just want to explore a bit of Asghar Fahadi, a fantastic Iranian filmmaker, then A Hero uh, is now available to watch on Amazon Prime or to rent on other film services. Uh, and do have a look for, for his other work as well, because uh, it's generally pretty great. The the last film we mentioned in our little roundup this week uh, is a, a re-release of one of the greatest films of all time, in my opinion, uh, very highly regarded generally by French director Francois Truffaut. Uh, I think if you're trying to find a route for somebody who's not a big fan of, of international cinema and something, I would say Francois Truffaut, remember Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Uh, he was the French scientist that Spielberg was such a fan of that he brought in to do a cameo. Uh, and when Steven Spielberg is a fan of somebody, uh, you know that uh, it's probably someone you should pay attention to. Now, I think, Henry, you and I both had the experience of having watched Jules A. Jim, which is now being re-released, a fairly long time ago. Uh, what did you think of it the first time that you saw it? Can you remember? Well, I really enjoyed it. I Again, this was one that I was introduced to while I was at university, and like I said earlier, was the, the Amadova. There were some films that didn't grab me that perhaps should have, but Jules A. Jim was one that did. I think it really... It was my introduction to Truffaut, and I really thought, wow, this is... Yeah, this is a director who who I should be looking out for. Like, foreign films can often have quite an intimidating and and quite a quite a large... Like, it's it can feel like a barrier to get over sometimes, but I think watching his films and then going into 400 Blows afterwards, I really thought, oh, OK, this is... You know, this isn't some other category. This isn't international cinema. This is just pure and simple, straight-line cinema for me. It was just... Yeah, this is fantastic. Um, and I haven't seen this in the re-release in cinemas, but I saw 400 Blows when it was re-released and it completely changed the film for me. I can only imagine it will be the same for Jules Jim. Uh, Vicky, uh, 400 Blows is a film that you have seen, but you haven't seen uh, Jules Jim. Jim. Uh, do you think you'll be tempted into tr- try and catch this on its current release? I mean, so my introduction to Truffaut was Day for Night and Breathless, which was like great, you know, comedic French cinema and quite wistful. And then I went to go and see 400 Blows and I was quite taken aback by the serious, depressing matter that I was seeing on screen. But rather whatever I thought it's still a masterpiece and saying that I'd, I'd really love it's, it's an honour to get to see any kind of French cinema that's got a re-release in like a cinematic environment so I'd, I definitely will try and catch this and I'm quite excited to because I respectfully love his lighter work and I hope that maybe this will be along the same sidelines 
Uh, they, they, I think there's certainly some light in this, uh, although uh, maybe not towards the end of the film. Uh, it's a uh, pretty dark ending in many ways, a uh, little spoiler there. Um, Jean Moreau uh, plays Catherine, and uh, Oscar Werner is Jules, and Henry Serre is Jim, uh, who are both fighting for her various attentions. Uh, it's one of those great films to watch because you can see uh, bits of, of Tarantino, you can see bits of Scorsese, you can see so much of the future history of, of Western cinema uh, in this kind of film, and the, the French New Wave, which this forms a, an early part of, uh, really did set so many templates for cinema to come. Uh, if that has whetted your appetite, uh, then Jules Jim is showing at the Cambridge Arts Picture House uh, all week this week. Now, quite literally, from the sublime to the ridiculous. Hello, I'm Johnny Knoxville. Welcome to Jackass. Three, two, one. Whoa! A lot of people ask, what will Jackass be like once we're older? Well, it'll get more mature. The faster you pedal your bike, the faster the other guy's hand goes back. You said it wasn't going to feel like anything. Concussions aren't great, but as long as you have them before you're 50, it's cool. And Knoxville's 49, so we're good. I have to confess that sat in the cinema yesterday watching this, when the little guitar twang goes off, I just had this buzz of nostalgia uh, because I saw all three of the previous Jackass films uh, in the cinema. Uh, this, of course, is the return of Johnny Knoxville and some of the gang. Uh, sadly, they've not all uh, either survived to this point or made it into the film for various reasons, uh, which we won't go into in too much length here. But uh, the likes of uh, Dave England and uh, Jason Wee-Man-Coon and Preston Lacey, uh, names familiar to Jackass fans uh, have returned for this uh, Jeff Tremaine the director and Johnny Knoxville uh, who is not only the star but one of the producers as well also back and if you've never seen Jackass the TV series or the three previous films uh, or their various spin-offs uh, it's grown men doing silly and often painful things to each other um, and this time we have a slight diversity in the cast and a woman as well uh, so that's that's the selling point from here last time was 12 years ago and the selling point then was 3D and um, the 3D fad didn't continue in cinemas but it seems Jackass has Henry has this one uh, been a, a nostalgia trip for you? I, it's it's such a treat for me. I, I, I'm sorry, Mark, we're returning to the age thing. I was too young to see any of the original Jackass films when they originally came out in cinemas. They were something I, I kind of discovered online as I was just, you know, watching films that my friends were all recommending. And it felt like something I shouldn't be seeing. It was one of those really exciting discoveries of, oh, oh, I shouldn't have seen that. I want to see more of that. Um, and so getting to sit down in a cinema yesterday, yeah, as you said, that guitar lick goes, and I was grinning from ear to ear instantly. It is so, like I say, it's the first Jackass film I've seen in a cinema, and I think even though it isn't necessarily a particularly cinematic film, it is one that really deserves to be seen in a cinema just to share that experience of, of you and a bunch of strangers sitting in a dark room together laughing as a bunch of men well into their 50s, many with children, are getting hit multiple, multiple times in the testicles. Um, I should digress very slightly to uh, to mention, uh, we've talked about age a number of times on the show, uh, Tony Barnfield has said, uh, Mark, you're making me feel older than ever. Uh, it's a sage thing, no doubt. Apologies, Tony, uh, but thank you for listening. Don't forget, you can catch Tony Barnfield on the Sunday Supplement every Sunday from 2 here on Cambridge 105 Radio. Um, I saw this film yesterday uh, with three other people in the cinema at a, uh, at a Friday afternoon. Uh, there were two people in the very back row, about 12 rows behind me, and uh, they were both, at, I think, wetting themselves, if I'm allowed to say that on the radio, uh, 
uh, having a brilliant time and still laughing as they walked out the door. Uh, the guy in the row in front of me I thought was going to be sick at one point. Um, does this reasonably sum up the set of reactions you're likely to get watching a Jackass film? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's one of those films that you spend about half of it watching behind your hands because it's so uncomfortable and the other half being unable to see the screen because you've bent over double laughing. There's, I think the reactions to it are best summarised in a scene in which one of the, the camera crew for the film is is pictured vomiting into his COVID face mask. That is a a fantastic metaphor for Jackass Forever. It is, you know, Jackass still very much back in the modern age and still very much refusing to to grow old with grace. Did we need another one, though, when all said and done? With, yeah, the, how much does repetition dull the effect of watching these stunts, or actually do they manage to keep it fresh? I... See, it's interesting you say, did we need another one? Because I watched this, and I know Knoxville and crew have said we probably won't do another one. I did watch this and think, yeah, when's the next one? I I could do this forever. There was a point about halfway through where I thought, okay, well, we've surely, we've surely gone through all the possibilities now. There's only so many things that can be used to hit men in so many places. But then they find another way to do it, and it entertains again. There is a way that they can take ideas that should feel old and stale and put fresh spins on them that are genuinely like exciting that there's there's an intelligence to the stupidity on display here and where we were kind of i feel like i gave moonfall a little too much credit for for railing against the the intellectualization of cinema i think jackass is genuinely doing that it's about saying it's really fun to be really dumb <laughs> Yeah, there are a few cultural references. Here we get a, a man, Johnny Knoxville himself, being shot out of a cannon as dressed as Icarus. Uh, See, so yeah, there, there is a little bit of high culture in here. I was also delighted to see um, Tori Belecci. Uh, so if people are fans of Mythbusters, the uh, the science show that ran for many, many years. Uh, he was one of the junior Mythbusters. Uh, popping up here, and I think we're allowed to say this at lunchtime on the radio, uh, trying to help Steve-O light his own, uh, should we say wind? Let's uh, Yeah, he was, he was breaking wind underwater and they were all trying to light it, but with the application of science. So you can you learn something from the jackass films as well or maybe not to do the stunts no i mean it's as as the warning says at the start these are, are done by i think professionals is a strong word but people who know what they're doing this is not stuff you should try at home i don't think you'd want to try most of it at home um but yeah there's i don't know you learn something certainly about the versatility of uh, the human body in this um especially some of there's a stunt near the end with johnny knoxville and a bull which the fact that he's still alive and walking is incredible. Um, I think what you learn is that there's actually, this is going to sound strange, there's a lot of love and adoration between these men. And that was weirdly the thing I ended up walking away from, this this warm feeling inside of, wow, this is, you know, these aren't the kind of things I do with my friends. But there's this same adoration that no matter how much you may you know, make fun of each other or or kind of have little digs, there's always this underlying respect and, and adoration. And, and ultimately, is it that camaraderie that, that sets this apart from the imitators and really makes it work? It absolutely is. You know, it's it could feel cruel when there's, you know, some of these things happening and everyone is on the sidelines laughing, but you know that as soon as someone is laughing, they're going to be in the next stunt, they're going to have something done to them. Everyone is only laughing because they know that they can take the hits. They no no one's there on a free ride. They're all they're all there because they can they can do this all day and they they just want to be around each other. That's the reason this film exists because these are genuine friendships. 
Uh, and his friendships has been a delight to revisit, I have to say. Uh, I think, fair to say, uh, Henry and I are both big fans of this. Uh, if you'd like to see Jackass Forever, um, good luck. Maybe take a little something just in case. Uh, there's at least two scenes where somebody unfortunately has to uh, uh, um, use a, a face mask to try and um, uh, help them out of the, the, the disgust they're, they're involuntarily seeing the situation. I'm trying not to say this in any way which cause offence. But uh, yeah, it, it may be not one for the faint-hearted. Uh, but if you do fancy it, Jackass is showing the view and the light. And rather unsurprisingly, it is rated 18. Uh, you're listening to the Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. And we've reached our last film of the day. And this is a, in my opinion, gorgeous Japanese animation. We'll find out shortly if Victoria and Henry agree with me. Girls of song Guide me through the storm Don't you think your mom would want you to be happy? Suzu! Come be in the picture with us! <sighs> happy? But how? Welcome to the world of you. You may not be able to start over in the real world, but you can start over in the world of you. With its unique body-sharing technology, you was able to draw out a user's hidden strength. I can finally sing again. So Bell is a Japanese animation from director Mamoru Hosoda. Uh, his previous films include Summer Wars, Wolf Children, The Girl Who Leapt Through Time, and Mirai. And his latest film is partially set in a virtual reality world uh, where biological uh, biometric scanners uh, create an avatar for you based on your own personality and physical appearance. And uh, Belle is the character who enters into this world and suddenly becomes a singing sensation. Uh, speaking of sensations, uh, Vicky, uh, was this a sensation for you? I think we've talked about this in the studio, but um, I'm a giant fan of Hosuda and um, all of his previous works. Um, I've definitely grown up with him and Studio Chizu and the animation that he's developed. And this is what he's said is the film that he's always wanted to make. Um, in saying that, um, I went into this last year at London Film Festival very, very excited and he delivered once again. I was crying for the last 40 minutes or so. This is a modern adaptation that he has interpreted as Beauty and the Beast with um, a Japanese animation take. Um, he has complemented the film with music by Millennium Parade with this astounding soundtrack that is very, very catchy and makes you love the characters even more. And in se- as, as well as you mentioned, this stunning animation background, which is so gorgeous to watch on screen and I can't imagine not seeing this in the cinema because it is just absolutely breathtaking to view. Uh, It's certainly got a feel uh, of I think the sensibility of of much of the rest of Japanese animation, a lot of the character designs felt familiar but then uh, the film starts and within five minutes on screen is a giant flying whale with speakers across its back which uh, Belle is standing on and singing. Uh, Henry, might this uh, this come as a bit of a culture shock if you're not uh, used to Japanese cinema? I think it could. I, I'm not the most experienced with anime. I've, I've kind of done, you know, a couple of the Studio Ghibli. Um, I've done my time kind of outside of that with, with Neon Genesis Evangelion and a couple of Satoshi Kon films. So I was kind of, you know, prepared for the, the visual splendor that was to come. And I think certainly, yeah, Vicky's right. If you're going to see this, I think you should try and see it in a cinema because it is just completely breathtaking. 
the virtual world is rendered in a different animation style to the quote-unquote real world. Um, and that is a really powerful kind of cinematic tool as well, the way that it, it visually distinguishes between those two worlds um, in a way that just works on a base level. And I think the sound design as well, again, you want to be seeing that in a cinema because it just sounds absolutely incredible. So you mentioned already the fact that the story uh, takes influences from Beauty and the Beast, but there's more going on here, isn't there? Mm. Um, like a lot of the topics that he delves on, and like a lot of Japanese animation, it's about a girl that is going through a traumatic experience in this online world, which is familiar with a lot of his older films, um, especially Summer Wars. It's a uh, she finds this company environment, she gains her confidence back, and when she finds the beast, which is known as the dragon in this film, they build a relationship to go through their own traumatic experiences. And watching the kind of it's kind of hard it's it's a hard subject matter a lot of them she's grieving from the loss of her mother and this online world gives her confidence that i can imagine the internet does for a lot of people that are going through subjects like this and the same with the beast is a character and the person i don't want to spoil it too much but the character that plays the online beast is also going through events that they can help each other on and i feel like for children watching this because it, it is meant for like children it's very um it's a very lovely experience to watch a friendship develop through the online world of you and how they, in real life, can tackle it together. I, I, I'm going to very carefully come back to the age topic again uh, at the course of this uh, show one last time. I think because, for me, this doesn't necessarily feel like a children's film. I think it's a film that children should watch, but, uh, you know, at, at my age, my advanced years, um, it felt still as accessible and as open to me uh, as it would uh, of any age. Uh, you know, we've mentioned Sing 2 in this show, which I think really is for kids. Uh, Henry, do you feel that actually this, this is a film that really should be appreciated by all ages? Uh, yeah, I think, as Vicky says, there are some, some serious topics in it, but in terms of, like, like I was saying earlier, visually it is really unrivaled, and I think that will keep the attention of, of many children, perhaps not, the younger ones i think you know sing two might be the right choice for them but i think even you know eight or nine like children who are kind of developing and are starting to like you know discover their own taste in film this is one to say okay we'll try this and i think even you know even if you take your child to see it and they don't particularly connect i think you're kind of it's it's a kind of stepping stone on a path to to different kinds of cinema that they may then enjoy later in life uh I, I'm always sort of no, finding it difficult to know where to go because there's so much going on in this film. Uh, the, the style of the animation, the, the resonant themes, uh, but the music as well. You've mentioned the music already. The music is just fabulous. And you know, when so many animated films these days have great soundtracks to them, uh, this is something a little bit different. Um, I feel like maybe Shinkai, as an example, who did Your Name and... Um weathering with you which is he maybe built the level of what a soundtrack to an anime could be and i know that those he has a collaboration and with those bands those soundtracks are so favorable but i think like hosada has taken a take from this because this is the first time i've experienced it from him having watched his previous films and he knows how much elevated it can be um and it also makes you love the characters so much more because you're singing them when you're coming out of the film. And I feel like this is definitely a step that Japanese animation is taking. While, of course, there's beautiful animation like um, coming from Studio Ghibli, but now incorporating this kind of lovely, catchy soundtrack to go with it. It's, it's definitely the future that I'm seeing of Japanese animation. 
Uh, and as it feels like you're the expert on this in the studio today, uh, what would you recommend if people do go and see this and love it? Where should they go next? Uh, from this film? Uh, yes. So, so yeah, the sort of, you know, uh, we would also recommend. So, oh, um, like I just mentioned, if you love this film, uh, Shinkai's Your Name is my one of my top films of all time. And I feel like a lot of the elements in this film it will be in the cinema that you watch with him as well. And Weathering With You has came out recently. Uh, I definitely recommend that one as well. Well, thank you so much both uh, Vicky and Henry for your contributions today. It's been great to chat to you both. Uh, That is it for today, pretty much. Uh, This has been the Cambridge Film Show. Uh, We'll be back in two weeks' time when possible films for discussion, uh, depending on which reviewers we can persuade to go and see which films, uh, will include uh, Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg in Uncharted. Uh, We have a cast of thousands with Kenneth Branagh's Poirot in Death on the Nile. And uh, we have uh, Owen Wilson uh, being asked to marry me by Jennifer Lopez. Uh, there is some face pulling going on in the studio, and I won't tell you at this point which film it was from, but you might be able to guess. Uh, all that to come in two weeks' time. Don't forget, you can always catch the show uh, back uh, as a uh, podcast, and we have a repeat as well each week. We are here every other Saturday, alternating with Flavour from 12, and we'd love to have your company again. Uh, to take us out of the show today, I'm going to share a little bit of music which features uh, not as incongruously as you would think in the soundtrack to sing to. Uh, There's a new U2 song featuring on that soundtrack, but also some music that uh, has been shared before as well. Uh, So this is U2 and stuck in a moment you can't get out of. Thanks for listening and we'll look forward to seeing you again in two weeks' time. Cambridge 105 Radio.